I've never thankfully been on the receiving end of domestic violence, but I have been in a laboratory in Barcelona when I put on a headset and I looked into a mirror and I became a woman. And a man walked into my apartment and got right up into my face and started screaming and yelling at me. And I have never forgotten that moment. And now when I see an ICD-10 code for domestic violence, I flash back to that moment in that virtual reality environment in Barcelona, Spain, and think about how it made me feel so small and terrible. Hello and welcome to Himscast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. I'm joined today by Movie Health News Associate Editor Dave Moyo, as well as by our guest, Dr. Brennan Spiegel, Director of Health Services Research at Cedar sinai and the author of the forthcoming VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Brennan. Thanks for having me. We spoke last week with Dr. Robert Lewis, and we talked a little bit about VR and AR in healthcare and how the COVID-19 crisis has affected the development of that technology and and the innovation happening in that space. Uh, We're going to continue that conversation this week with Dr. Spiegel. Uh, As I mentioned on last week's episode, Dave Moyo recently wrote a piece about this and delved into some of the different aspects. And Dave, I'm going to ask you to kick us off with the first question for Brennan. Absolutely. Well, Brennan, I think the most prudent ask here is what's going on? What are you seeing firsthand? What's happening at your organization in terms of ongoing or not ongoing VR research projects? Yeah, right. So, you know, COVID-19 has affected everything about how we practice medicine, how we deliver healthcare. Uh, we're starting to see it right itself a little bit as we move into the next phase of the pandemic. Um, but certainly it's affected our virtual reality programs, uh, which in many cases are inpatient programs at Cedar sinai And so this raises lots of issues about ensuring the headsets are clean and can be recycled properly. And we're always thoughtful about that, whether we're in a pandemic or otherwise. Um, but these kinds of issues have slowed down our, uh, our use of virtual reality during this pandemic, which is sort of unfortunate because in a way, there's never been a more important time for VR to shine, which I think is something you wrote in your own article, VR's time to shine. And you know, why is it a time for VR to shine? Because people have never been so, uh, not just physically isolated, um, but socially isolated, emotionally isolated. Um, and scared, not just about, about you know, the, the pandemic and COVID, but about losing a job um, or having um, diminished access to care uh, or having friends or family who have lost jobs or have become sick. So we know about the pandemic, but the next pandemic is the mental health pandemic. And how do we go beyond, you know, the four walls of a hospital to where people actually live, work, and are now suffering at home? How do we reach them? Video visits, sure, uh, that's one way to get into a home, but that still requires that we have trained clinicians on the other side of those lines uh, contacting patients at a particular time, uh, and they have to be in a home where they don't necessarily have people running around behind them. They need the privacy to have very vulnerable conversations about their health. So virtual reality sort of steps in. In a a way, it can augment these these, uh, approaches as a a digital therapeutic that doesn't require a clinician that can be delivered to a home and can be experienced in privacy at the time and place of the user's choosing. And that's one long answer to your question about sort of where we see VR repositioning itself 
um, during this transition we've been going through. And the asymmetrical component you're describing, um, very application-driven, sent to the home, that's only one uh, modality or one form that we could use VR for. It could, as you said, just be used as a sort of telehealth virtual care service. We have the patient here and the provider here, or it can be used asynchronously, software-driven. And as you're saying, it seems very multidisciplinary um, in a way that it's affecting maybe what the patient is presenting with, but also uh, their social condition, as they said, or any number of uh, cases that we have early evidence that it can affect. Right, right. Another related concept I want to bring up, and I'm going to actually discuss this. We have an upcoming free webinar um, that we're going to be offering uh, online through Cedars-Sinai uh, on, uh, on June 30th at um, between 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific time, talking about all these issues regarding COVID and VR. So we could talk more about that if you're interested. But in that symposium, I'm going to talk about how VR can help reinstill the humanity in healing. And what I mean by that, just sort of a, a big concept, and a big, a big claim too, is that now that we're experiencing healthcare through screens and engaging people on monitors that are filled with data, filled with laboratories, filled with ICD-10 codes, we can start to think about patients as sort of like alphanumeric strings and start to lose the humanity that comes from a face-to-face -face interaction of literally reading uh, facial expressions and body language and, and conducting a physical examination, which is all part of healthcare, is literally you know, the laying of hands on somebody else in a clinical way to understand what's happening in, in somebody's life and their symptoms. We've lost all of that. And although video visits are terrific, they, um, they're, they're necessary, but by no means sufficient to transcend the barriers that we're experiencing right now. So, you know, you take something um, like an ICD-10 code, which just flashes before my eyes, but that doesn't mean anything if I don't understand what's happening behind that ICD-10 code. And what VR allows us to do, and I'll talk about this in this symposium that's coming up, is to sort of become an empathy machine. And that's a term uh, that I didn't come up with. Uh, I believe Chris Milk came up with that term. This idea that we can uh, perspective take with virtual reality. Uh, I can understand what it's like. Uh, I can't understand really, I've never been through something like, for example, domestic violence, which is now increasing in incidence during this pandemic. I've never thankfully been on the receiving end of domestic violence, but I have been in a laboratory in Barcelona when I put on a headset and I looked into a mirror and I became a woman. And a man walked into my apartment and got right up into my face and started screaming and yelling at me. And I have never forgotten that moment. And now when I see an ICD-10 code for domestic violence, I flash back to that moment in that virtual reality environment in Barcelona, Spain, and think about how it made me feel so small and terrible. Now, I'm giving that example because there are so many others. What is it like to be in a family with a parent who has dementia? What is it? Uh, like, you know, to be depressed, to have a migraine headache. All of these can be simulated with virtual reality to reinstill that humanity that we need in making a human communication between a patient and provider that I'm afraid we're losing a little bit right now in this era of video conference visits. And I think you're speaking a lot from, as you said, the connection between the patient and provider, and maybe you're speaking specifically from the provider's perspective, but there are also so many applications of patients connecting with other patients, 
right. I know there's at least one company that works a lot with um, residency homes or aging care facilities that's using VR to just connect patients who can't see their families right now. As you said, that's the empathy right. can work for everyone involved. Yeah, Rendever and other, um, other companies focused on senior care uh, have been doing this work for some time to really engage patients um, in, in unique ways. Uh, for example, um, you know, a patient with dementia who's living in a, a home can suddenly um, revisit their childhood home using, you know, Google Maps and, you know, stereoscopic uh, recreations of their home in a VR headset. And it's amazing to see not only what happens when they experience that, but when other people that they're sharing their um, the home with are also watching in real time the exact same um, view. And uh, all of a sudden, there's this sort of shared sense of sort of communion. And that doesn't happen as easily if you're just watching a two-dimensional screen. This is the whole point of virtual reality is if it's used correctly, it takes advantage of the presence, the psychological concept that you literally feel physically and emotionally and socially in a new space. That's what virtual reality does that's so different and unique compared to any other audiovisual medium that we have. So whether it's dementia or even there's examples of patients not just empathizing with one another, but with themselves too. And so another example of that is work from Omer Liran at UCLA who has been using virtual reality in, with patients with HIV who are taking antiretrovirals. And in this instance, the problem he's been trying to fix is some patients stop taking their medicines. They um, just fall off of the medications. And he was trying to figure out how can he really uh, engage people to stay on their medications. And the way he figured this out was to create a VR environment where people go in and they see their body and they watch what happens when they take a medication and they can see how it can block the um, you know, immune cells from a virus invading it. Um, and what, they, what happens over time with the voiceover is they start to empathize with themselves. Like you have this capability to help yourself and this is what's going to happen to you if you don't help yourself. So uh, help us help you by you helping yourself. And in a randomized control trial, he showed that people who use the VR experience had a, uh, had a uh, lower viral load and a higher CD4 count compared to people that didn't use the virtual environment. So there's so many examples out there of VR going far beyond you know, pain management, which is what we often focus on, but all these other biopsychosocial applications. One topic I wanted to get into last week, but um, we didn't have time for, is is the idea of health equity. I mean, I think when people think of VR, especially talking to two doctors, you know, based in California, uh, you know, there's this sense that it's a it's an expensive technology. It's not going to be scalable to the people who really need it. Um, and I know there's things that you do in in your work and and the work of the folks that you interact with in this space to try to really make this a technology that isn't just going to be, you know, for the for the well to do. And so I'd love if you could talk about that that point a little. Yeah. Bit. So there's a lot of ways to approach this question of of health equity and virtual reality. Um, you know, one one way to approach it is to think about how virtual reality can be used um, to address implicit bias. 
uh, and explicit bias, but really implicit bias, which we know we've heard a lot about this recently, particularly with police officers. We know that um, almost all humans carry some degree of implicit bias uh, for all sorts of different other groups of people. And the first stage in addressing implicit bias is recognizing it and understanding that it exists. So there's really powerful work from Jeremy Balenson at Stanford and others who have used virtual reality for years to uh, allow people to feel what it's like to be in another person's shoes. And I gave the example of domestic violence earlier, um, but you know there are studies where you can change your race or ethnicity. And there's uh, evidence that having experienced life in another person's body in an, with another um, you know, color of skin, uh, with, with a different physique, or even including um, obesity, for example, that it changes people's views durably about other groups of people. And that's, again, something that won't happen if you read a trifold brochure or watch a video, a training video, but it does seem to happen when you're engaged in a three-dimensional virtual embodiment experience. So that's one way that VR is being used sort of to address issues of, uh, of, of equity. Um, we did a study focusing on high blood pressure among African-Americans in particular, and we worked with a church and with Pastor Calvin Sauls at the Holman United Methodist Church um, in uh, the Adams District in Los Angeles. And this is a, uh, an African-American church, and the pastor actually contacted us uh, and asked our team, along with uh, uh, Dr. Bernie Coleman in our um, nursing research group, to help him develop a technological program, and he wasn't sure what it was going to look like at that point, to help his parishioners eat more healthily and to avoid high salt diet, uh, particularly salt, which is particularly prevalent in um, the urban African-American diet. And uh, this is not something I knew a whole lot about at all, but I learned a lot from him. And we worked with his parishioners to develop from the ground up a virtual reality experience where they would walk into a kitchen and see different um, culturally appropriate uh, plates of food, of, of meals. And then they would see how much salt is in that food. And as they started to eat it, they would be transported right into their body where they would watch as the salt affects their heart, kidneys, blood, you know, uh, uh, brain and blood vessels. Then they would come out and see the food in a new light uh, with a lower salt version. And then their pastor himself, Pastor Sauls, would come into the, into the video, into the VR environment and uh, would conduct a sermon with them. They would all go out onto a beach and he would talk about how now that you've learned these things, are you going to act on them or not? How are we gonna work together to change the way you approach diet. And um, it was a very spiritual experience that's hard to really describe in words here. But what we did show incredibly was a seven point drop in systolic blood pressure in an uncontrolled case series over 60 days among patients who use this VR program. So pretty incredible. Um, it was more than just the VR program. There were some other important parts to this project. Uh, but uh, just another example where VR can be used in lots of different um, and, and diverse environments. And to that point also, we were talking earlier about Rendever. It, it seems like any kind of imagined limitation of, of some people aren't going to be able to do it, aren't going to be able to use the technology, it tends to, to evaporate pretty quickly in the, in the real world. 
Yeah, we've, we've now used VR in over 3,000 people. And certainly there are some technical challenges and those need to be considered when developing the software and the hardware solutions. Um, a lot of companies, and I credit um, uh, several of them, Applied VR in particular, uh, Trip, and many others have really taken this into consideration to try and make it as simple as possible to turn on, uh, minimizing the use of the hand controller, uh, very simple screens. And that's not just for older individuals, it's for anyone. Now there is a digital divide though, and that people who grew up with the internet um, have a different experience with technology than those who didn't. Now I'm right on the border. There was no such thing as the internet. Nothing, I, I learned to type on a typewriter. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of in the middle and I do need a little bit of help from time to time using technology. So I can appreciate both sides of this digital divide and we need to uh, recognize that there are differences. But what I've seen overall is that with the right hardware and software, uh, almost anyone can use it. And certainly if they have some support at home to help, you know, get, get the system up and running. Are there any practical concerns the headset, um, at least nowadays with the current technology and the consumer facing headsets that are available now are still at least a few hundred dollars. Um, software is easily scalable, but there's still a very real hardware component. Do you see that as um, becoming more surmountable in the future or do you think it's a matter of uh, pointing out the outcomes and getting a payer to pay for it. Yeah, I really hope it's the latter um, in time that, you know, I, I like to say that um, science is no longer the barrier to implementing virtual reality. We have plenty of science that shows that this technology works for lots of different things, over 5,000 studies. The barriers are financial, uh, the barriers, you know, are insurance coverage, it's training the workforce, um, it's engaging patients around this technology. It's all the stuff that's sort of, in a way, mundane compared to the fantastical work of creating beautiful virtual worlds and so on. Uh, that sort of has been done. I mean, there's st it's still being done. It's always being perfected. But the work now has to be on how to implement this stuff. And you mentioned cost because that's a big part of all that. I mean, that's a big attribute that we have to deal with um, for scaling this. My hope is that uh, as insurance companies continue to study and evaluate the benefits of VR, that they'll be more than willing, I would think, to pay for these, these headsets. You think about how that pales in comparison to a hospital visit or an, an managing an overdose of an opioid, for example, or, um, or any number of other, almost anything else that we pay for in healthcare is going to be more than $299, which is pretty much the cost of, let's say, an Oculus Go or 399 or whatever it ends up being, depending upon the headset you use, a Pico and so on. Um, so uh, yeah, we, but we do have to recognize not everyone can afford to just put down 300 bucks on a headset. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's an important consideration. From the provider side, is there still a stigma around VR? People think it's like video games, it's, it's frivolous, it's, it's for fun, not for work. Or is that starting to dissipate? You know, I've really never seen that as much on the provider side. There, there are different types of providers. But generally speaking, when I present our VR research to doctors, they, you know, I have their attention. They definitely are paying attention. And they are generally very eager to get involved. And why? Because they know that there are certain things that we're not great at in medicine. Pain management is a perfect example. I mean, the, you know, we all know the issues with opioids and the fact that we're still in an opioid epidemic and 
that's not going to get any better with the COVID-19 pandemic. So doctors know also that the brain is connected to the body and this old, you know, Descartian notion, Cartesian notion that the brain and the body are separate and apart. You know, if anyone who studied philosophy read Rene Descartes' work and this whole idea of dualism that the brain and the body are separate and apart. Um, but, you know, we've come to realize that that was wrong, totally wrong, in fact. In fact, the brain and the, the, the body is an extracranial extension of the brain. We literally, literally need our body. We need our tendons and ligaments. We need our bones. We need the immune system, the nerve. We need all of that to literally have thoughts, to literally think of things and know things. So now that we're recognizing that, it's not too surprising that some, a mind-body intervention like virtual reality you know, is going to have health benefits. And I think most doctors get that. I do get a little pushback sometimes from doctors who say, well, you know, is this FDA cleared? And I think, really, is that your standard now? I mean, I don't think aspirin's FDA cleared last I checked. No one needs to get, uh, you know, there, there's a million things we do that are not FDA clear. That's like asking, is talk therapy cleared by the FDA? You know, for psychiatrists and therapists. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to in, you know, involve, get, do any talk therapy for this patient until we show that it's FDA cleared. It's not even an FDA clearable thing. So anyway, I'm just saying that there's different perspectives, but most doctors are, in my experience, very eager to learn more and want to bring this technology to their patients. Have to wrap up soon. Dave, do you have a last question or two? Um, I would like to ask a little bit, because I know that you're very involved in the VR, therapeutic VR community, and just with our own discussions for the feature a couple weeks ago, uh, what are your thoughts on how the current ecosystem is going to affect the vendors and particularly the early stage startups that are trying to develop or implement their own therapeutic VR? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, a very vulnerable time in a way because of the economic uncertainty and, you know, everyone, including VCs, you know, thinking more carefully about what they're going to invest in and, and what's worthwhile. So I'm worried that some of the smaller companies doing really great work, you know, could get lost in the shuffle and not come out the other end of all this. Um, I'm, I'm hoping it's the opposite, that the, you know, the work of these kinds of podcasts and the work that you're doing and writing about this topic and, and that insurance companies are seeing all of a sudden this is VR's time to shine. And, and in fact, this is a time to invest in VR. Um, I'm hoping that this is a boost to um, virtual therapeutics, including all the individual companies working hard. But I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball on this. I just would say I'm, I'm a little concerned about it. Um, yeah. Do you want to take a minute and talk about your book? Uh, and sure folks would be interested if they're tuning into this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And um, yeah, for the past few years, I've been writing this book. Uh, it's called VRX. Um, you, you mentioned at the top, you know, a little play on words, RX, uh, but VRX. And as you said, that's uh, how virtual therapeutics will revolutionize medicine. And this book is really, um, it's sure, it's about virtual reality, but it's really about uh, philosophy of mind. It's about psychology. It's about neuroscience. About clinical medicine, uh, and it's about technology. It's about how all of those come together. And and I start the book by asking big questions like, how is it that I can have a complete out of body experience in virtual reality, and literally for a little bit of time imagine that I've died, which has happened to me. 
how is that possible? What does that teach me about my, my consciousness? What does that teach me about the way my brain and my body are connected, physically connected, um, uh, you know, neurophysiologically connected? What does that teach me about my mind? And, and, and what does it mean that we can actually help somebody with obesity or anorexia or dementia or schizophrenia, all these totally diverse conditions, high blood pressure, with a, a VR headset? Uh, what does that teach us about it? And, and how can we learn from these examples to expand our capabilities as Western trained physicians to start legitimately thinking about VR as a mind-body therapy? Um, and finally, and I talked about this at the beginning, you know, what is it, how can it help us reinstill the humanity and healing as an empathy machine? So the book is about all of those things. And it go and I and you know it's got hundreds of references. I, I traveled all around the world to write this book, uh, and I you know interviewed oh got hundreds of people that are in this book. So I'm really excited about it. It will be published by Basic Books out of New York. It's a wide release book. It uh, publishes on October 6th, and it's on um, pre sales now on on Amazon. Uh, and then we also have a virtual medicine conference every year. Uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, we had to cancel it. We had over 400, 450 people signed up this year. So we're now moving it online as a free set of webinars. And as I mentioned before, the next one will be on, uh, on uh, June 30th. Um, you can go to virtualmedicine.org and uh, sign up for it there under the uh, webinar tab. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I love this idea of uh, virtual reality as as virtually assisted empathy, and uh, and this you know real focus on on not the technology, but but what the technology can do for for people and humanity and people connecting to people. So it's been really delightful to to chat about that with you. Uh, we'll include some links uh, to the pre order for the book, to some articles we've done on this topic, uh, and thank you all for listening. Stay safe.